Welcome to this month's episode of Fraud Talk. I'm Mandy Moody, the communications manager here at the ACFE, and I am very excited to be joined in our studio with Jeremy Clopton. Jeremy, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jeremy is actually in town. Uh, He's part of our faculty. He's teaching our CFE review course on-site in Austin. And I forced him to pop over here and do this podcast live because, as we know, it's so much more fun to do things face-to-face than always talking over the phone. Yes, much much more fun to have a conversation in person than virtually. Yeah. So Jeremy currently is the director of Upstream Academy, and I'll let you tell our listeners a little bit about you and what you do in addition to doing some courses for us. I appreciate it, Mandy. Yeah, I am a faculty member with the ACFE, uh, so teach quite a few different seminars uh, throughout the course of the year. And as you mentioned, I'm a director with Upstream Academy, and we focus on working with accounting firms and getting them to high performance. So we focus a lot on leadership training, executive development, Uh, Building on my background in public accounting and data analytics, uh, helping them launch new service lines that are uh, focused on technology, uh, but really just helping them improve uh, what they do, improve their firm cultures, and kind of move their firms forward into the future. And uh, since we are talking about generations in this uh, podcast, it's probably worth noting I'm a millennial. I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm proud of it. I'm okay with it. I'm an old millennial, but I'm a millennial nonetheless. So uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. And I have to admit that I am an old millennial as well, a proud old millennial. So I initially wanted to do this podcast two years ago when you presented on this topic at our Global Fraud Conference in Las Vegas. And so we've been trying to do this for a while now, and I'm excited we get to do it. But you spoke there about how to lead teams that are made up of different generations. And I walked away from that really learning a lot because the biggest thing I think I took away was that we have to think of our employees as humans and not as a millennial, uh, a boomer. And that kind of set the basis for the article that I wrote about your session. But I want to briefly go over just to begin, so we all get on the same page, what the generations are right now in the workforce and the ones that we see at pretty much every organization. So let's talk about some of those, and I know some of these are stereotypes, but let's talk about what they are and how you laid them out and the traits that they bring. Definitely, and it's worth noting there's only one officially recognized generation, according to the Census Bureau. There's only been one that was, you know, truly recognized as a generation. That was the boomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we look at who all's in the workforce today, we've essentially got five generations, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about because that's a lot of generations yeah. in the workforce at one time. Uh, the traditionalists are those that were born in 45 and before. So, you know, they're mid-70s at this point, but there are plenty of organizations that that's still... A lot of the leadership team, uh, a lot of the most experienced professionals uh, are going to be in that in that uh, group. You've got the baby boomers, of course, that were born between 1946 and 1964. Uh, Generation X followed the boomers, of course, and that's uh, born in 1965 up to about 1979. And it's really worth noting at this point that you know, the years on the generations and the, the definitions, they're kind of movable. Uh, mm-hmm. You're going to see different definitions depending on where you 
where you're reading, you know, what research department or organization or marketing firm you're talking to, they all kind of have slightly different definitions. But generally speaking, mid-60s to about 1979. Uh, from there, you could then get uh, Generation Y or the Millennials. Uh, they were born 1980 to about 95, you know, the mid-90s. Uh, and then anyone born kind of after 95 up until about 2010, though this generation still kind of being, you know, loosely defined at this yeah. point, is Generation Z. And it's interesting, you can really start to see the traits kind of followed the times, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because the generations and the different generational cohorts are really defined based on common experiences mm -hmm. at that point in their life where they kind of came of age. So, you know, the traditionalist, very militaristic, uh, you know, very much uh, World War One, World War Two mentality. Uh, and you see that a lot in their leadership style and mm -hmm. how they you know, perceive uh, perceive leadership structures and how organizations should work. Uh, if you look at the baby boomers, uh, they kind of moved a little bit away from that. You know, they they saw technology starting to evolve a little bit um, and, you know, the civil rights movement, different things that uh, they started to see more focus on process mm -hmm. and, you know, fairness and equality in the workforce. And then, you know, Generation X is kind of that um, kind of the the, gener the first generation really that started uh, trying to drive change yeah. and really kind of the contrarian type of generation. Uh, they're also kind of known as the forgotten generation because a lot of people talk about boomers and a lot of people talk about millennials because they're the bigger generations in the workforce. Uh, but it's worth noting that Generation X really had a big impact mm -hmm. on the workforce and on business and society well, as a whole. you mentioned technology during yeah. that time. Yeah. yeah, and it's starting to really evolve. You know, MTV, uh, you know, that's one of the big uh, things that Generation X is known for is that that really – you know, hit. And then Generation Y, again, the millennials, you hear both terms kind of thrown out there. Um, you know, they started to, they experienced a lot of key things uh, mm -hmm. as they were growing up. You know, again, we're, we're both older millennials, but you know, you had the Oklahoma City bombing, you had 9-11, mm -hmm. uh, you had Y2K. Technology really started uh, to take shape. You know, we, we had email addresses in, you know, for the older of us, probably in high school and maybe mm -hmm. into middle school a little bit, the younger millennials, they've had email addresses probably since they were in elementary school. Yeah. Uh, so you really started to see that, that technology start to change. And then Generation Z, they're really the first uh, digital natives, right? Yeah. They're the ones that, as you think about, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, these kids have had technology forever. I mean, they're truly the generation that that has had that. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned in that session a couple years ago, and it, to me, it's such a uh, an interesting way to think about this. You know, we always hear that um, you know everything's it's the greatest things in sliced bread, mm -hmm. right? That's that's the benchmark for whatever mm -hmm. reason, slicing mm -hmm. the bread. You know, and that was 1928. So some of the traditionalists that are in the workforce, well, they probably uh, you know weren't there when they first decided to slice bread. You know, during their childhood, it's very likely that because during the World War II, they actually stopped selling sliced bread for a short time because of, you know, needing the metal and needing the supplies. Mm -hmm. They remember a time where you couldn't buy sliced bread, possibly. Wow. So that's one group that's in yeah. the workforce, all the yeah. way to, you know, you, you've got a group that was born after that. Uh, one of my favorite TV clips of all time where on the Today Show, they're saying, what is Internet? And they're oh, trying. Yeah. yeah what's yeah. the A with the circle around? Does that mean about? Is that around? What exactly is that? Yeah. Right. Generation Z, the youngest members of our workforce, they were born after that was even asked. What yeah. is Internet? So what is Internet? you've got such a I mean, such a diversity there in 
the experiences that they've had. And it makes for a very interesting you know, dynamic within the workforce. And of course, that's what gives rise to a lot of the stereotypes, mm-hmm. uh, which is a bit of the challenge. Mm-hmm. But it is important to understand you know, when we think about generations, what were some of the experiences that they had? But keeping in mind, even within a generation, yeah. you've got people that had completely different experiences. Yeah. So you mentioned just now, and you mentioned in that session, looking at people and their experiences and looking at them as humans, not looking at them as oh, I just hired a bunch of millennials. What am I going to do about that? Or, oh, I work for this, you know, baby boomer who never lets me take time off or wants me in at seven and clocking out at five. Um, what What's the danger of just seeing someone as that type? Yeah, I think it's a big danger because I don't know anyone that has hired the entire generation. There's not an organization out there big enough to say, well, we've hired the entire boomer generation or we have the entire millennial generation. We hire employees. We hire individuals. And it's really important to realize that even within a generation, you may have five or six individuals that have completely different viewpoints because though they all experienced those same life-changing experiences growing up, they also experienced them from different perspectives. So while they came of age at the same time and are in that same generational cohort, the perspective that they came that they you know experienced can really influence their decision making. You know, I've, I've worked with individuals in their 60s that say I don't understand what the challenge is working with younger folks. I, I think more like a, a traditional millennial would than I do a boomer. And I've worked with millennials that are as you know cantankerous and you know, traditionalist sounding as far as stereotype goes as anybody. And you have to realize that if everything that we do is through the lens of, oh, well, you're a boomer, so therefore, or oh, you're a Gen X, therefore, or you're a Gen Z, therefore, we miss the fact that we have hired individuals based on their individual merit. And that's also how we need to lead them. Uh, It becomes a very, almost a really toxic culture. If it's all, I just don't understand millennials. Um, I I remember, you know, at a conference hearing somebody talking and they said, oh, well, I just don't understand millennials. Maybe it's time that I retire. And I don't even know who the person was or what they were talking about, but I wanted to jump in and say, well, yeah, maybe you should. Because if that's if you're so worried that you don't understand an entire generation, yeah. that you forget how to lead your own employees, yeah. that says a lot more about a leadership style and a leader's willingness to work with others than it does anything about a generation. Uh, and, but it goes both ways. Yeah. And it's important for the younger generations that may be listening to this to realize that you can't look at it and say, well, I've got a bunch of, you know, boomers leading the company or traditionalists leading the company and they just don't get it. Well, no, they do get it. And the thing that we all have to remember is those that are in leadership positions in successful companies have likely been there and got them to that point of success. Mm -hmm. So they know what they've done along the way. And it may sound old school. It may sound new school. It may not sound like they went to school. I don't know. But it's, it's based on experience. And one of the big challenges right now is, you know, the younger generations, and everybody has access to it, but the younger generations has grown up with, with access to information at their fingertips. Right? Everybody has access to it. Nobody has a leg up other than the fact that the younger generations have had it for a larger percentage of their lifetime, so they're more comfortable with it. They're not trying to figure out, okay, how do I 
add the technology to what I've been doing, but how do I use technology to make me great at what I want to do? Mm-hmm. And it, it completely changes that dynamic and it causes a lot of points of conflict really within the organization. But we all have to step back and remember we hired individuals and individuals can contribute when they're led and managed like individuals rather than saying, oh, you're a millennial, so you must want this, or oh, you're a boomer, so you must want this. We've just got to stop doing that and and focus on the fact that we lead companies that have people in them. And nobody that I'm aware of has hired an entire generation, nor will any company ever hire an entire generation. Yeah. Well, and something that I went to a conference recently, and they were talking about the opportunities, which we'll get into in a second, of the knowledge sharing that's going to have to take place as traditionalists and boomers retire, as we're going to see over the next 20, 30 years, and leave the workforce, and then the younger generations come up, that knowledge sharing is going to be so important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, will that knowledge get passed down by people working together, or will it stop with the comment you just said of, maybe I should just retire? Because to retire without passing on that that information and that experience would be such a loss, you know? Yeah, it really would. And as leaders, regardless of a generation, as a leader, you've got to be willing to, to step back and say, what's in the best interest of my organization? What's in the best interest of my company? Again, I work a lot with accounting firms. And I uh, recently talked with a, a managing partner of a firm, and he's in his 30s. Right. So he's got a completely different dynamic and challenge that he's dealing with yeah. than, you know, maybe somebody who's in their you know, in their mid 60s and looking to retire. Regardless of age, if you're the leader of a company, you're the leader of an organization, you've got to be making decisions and figuring out what's in the best interest of that organization. And that means passing along the critical information to that next generation of leader, regardless of their age. They may be in your peer group. Mm-hmm. You still have to pass along the information. They may be 30 years younger. You still have to pass along that information. And how how that gets done is is so important because without that, you know, that experience is now gone. We don't now have the context as to how do we get to where we are. That's really important context for anyone in an organization, especially a new leader. You need to know how you got to where you are. Now, that doesn't mean that you should keep doing it the way that it's always been yeah. done. Yeah. But the context is important because it can help help educate you about what the future might look like. Yeah. There are five areas that you talked about where we typically see conflict arise or where it might get a little a little heated <laughs> between generations. So let's break those down. Let's start with promotions and advancements and an ambition. So tell me kind of where you see this. Yeah, the the challenge here is, and one of the very first times uh, that I worked with an organization and was leading a session around generations in the workforce. And uh, it was at a manufacturing company, and I remember a gentleman at the very start of that saying, you know, I just had an intern that I was I was interviewing for an in- – someone I was interviewing for an internship. And they were saying, no, if I get the internship, how soon could I get a full-time offer? And if I get a full-time offer and I join, you know, how long – what would I need to do? Not how long, but what would I need to do to, to get my first promotion? And he goes, I just don't understand that mindset. And – not everybody can be the manager. Not everybody can be the CEO. Not everybody can be the president. And we talked about, you know, how 
essentially what that is is ambition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's viewed right now by a lot of individuals at every generation. I've heard millennials all the way through traditionalists saying, oh, my gosh, why are they asking already about promotion? Yeah. But what we have to do is we have to remember that's ambition. Mm-hmm. And I would much rather hire an individual that in interviewing for an internship is asking, what does the next five years look like if I'm successful and what can I do to accomplish that level of success? I'd much rather hire somebody like that than somebody that says, so can I clock out at five? And if so, do I still get a paycheck? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so it, it just looks different. It, it looks different, but it's you know, historically we've been we've been taught that you you come in, you do your job, and once you've been there long enough, yeah. you get promoted. You pay your dues. You pay your dues. Yeah. And I call that rear and seat time. And I don't necessarily care how long you've sat in the seat. I want to know how well are you performing. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, I've never asked a leader that question is said, which would you value more? How long someone has sat there or someone that is de- is determined to be a top performer? Which would you value more? Every leader is going to say, I much rather have someone that's determined to be a top performer than somebody that just wants to sit in the seat. But when it comes to promotions and advancement, mm-hmm. we say, well, the chart says you yeah. get promoted at X number of years, yeah. regardless of your level. And that's something that's causing a, a, a sticking point really Um, And it's causing this point of conflict, really, within the workforce because there's so much, you know, there's so much education out there for folks that are joining the workforce, whether it's, uh, you know, traditional or non-traditional. You know, they're being coached that when you get there, you need to be asking these hard questions. And it's it's uncomfortable because now we're having to talk about things that we don't want to talk about. Well, that's all that it is. But to me, it's ambition. Yeah. And we've got to recognize and step back and say, okay, why is this causing a conflict? Is it because we're uncomfortable talking about something we don't know, which is, well, I can't tell you exactly yeah. how well, yeah. how, how soon you're going to get promoted. Or is it, well, it really doesn't matter how well you perform. You're going to get promoted with everybody else because yeah. that's just what we do. Is that why we're uncomfortable with this? Or are we, are we uncomfortable with somebody that has so much ambition that we're threatened? And yeah. that's what's causing the conflict is, you know, you – you come out of college and you're being coached and you're being mentored and counseled to be ambitious yeah. and show that ambition because employers want to see that. But you have to do it this way. But you've got yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And then you get there and the employer's like, whoa, I love that ambition, but let's scale yeah. that back for about 10 years when yeah. then I want you to be ambitious. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's causing some conflict. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's such a great opportunity. Yeah. Right. I would much rather have an ambitious new hire than someone that's been here for 10 or 12 years and completely checked out and cruising. Yeah. So number two, feedback. So you said feedback doesn't have to be a score or only part of an annual review, but rather integrated into your management style. So tell me a little more about that. Yeah, right now feedback for a lot of organizations is the annual performance appraisal, right? Or performance review, whatever you want to call it. And I don't know anybody that's ever wanted to wait and hear at the end of the year that they screwed something up in January and they've been screwing it up ever since. Right. That's not good for an employee. That's not good for our businesses. Uh, feedback is it's it's constructive. It's how can you maximize your strengths and how can you mitigate a potentially damaging weakness. It's not all focused on how do you improve what you're bad at. Mm-hmm. Right, our biggest opportunities for growth are where our strengths are. Feedback, you know, and the and and it's it's evolved over the years in business, and that's just because society's evolved over the years in the business world as well. 
you know, there's this kind of this myth out there that, uh, you know, people, you know, the young kids nowadays, as I keep hearing it, uh, you know, they want to score on the screen and they want it to be like a video game. Mm-hmm. I have yet to talk to a young person in business that that's what they want. But if you talk to young people, experienced people, older people, middle-aged people, and you said, would you rather understand what you're doing well and what you're not doing well so you could improve? Or would you rather just wait and hear about it once at the end of the year? Everybody wants to get better. Nobody wants – I don't – I shouldn't speak in absolutes. Maybe there are people out there that have no desire to get better and they just want to yeah. sail. And yeah. that's yeah. – that teach their own. Yeah. Feedback to me needs to be much more integrated. And one of the one of the things that I encourage people to do in this regard, and it's really simple, is just ask three questions. And that's, what am I doing that I should keep doing? What am I doing that I should stop doing? And what should I start doing that I'm not doing? Mm-hmm. And just making that a regular part of conversation on a team. Yeah. Regardless of generation, I encourage you know junior people to ask senior people, senior people to ask junior people, those that you coach, those that you supervise. It should be a, a dialogue that goes both ways so that everybody can figure out how can I be as successful as possible in the role that I'm in. Yeah. That's what feedback's all about. Yeah. You know, we hear all this, oh well, you know they just want to, they keep asking why and how am I doing and they need the you know this 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 constant score. It's a desire to improve. Yeah. And I think if we step back and recognize that if it's genuinely asked with a desire to improve, that's valuable. Don't get me wrong. There are probably people out there that are just, you know, using feedback as a cop out for doing a good job and like, oh, show me how to do it better. Yeah, in that situation yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense. But generally speaking, Feedback should be about improvement. How can you get better at what you're great at already and maximize that? And how can you overcome or mitigate the things that are holding you back? That's truly what feedback needs to be. And that's an ongoing, it's not once a year. Mm-hmm. It's just a conversation. Yeah. And it, it benefits the business. It yeah. benefits and the it company. it have yeah. to be a scary conversation. No. Or an awkward conversation. No. And maybe if you put into practice what you're saying, you get so much more comfortable with it to where it becomes second nature. And... It doesn't, I mean, we all as managers or directors get, you know, oh, I got to have a tough conversation. Yeah. You know, you kind of dread it. But if you practice it more, then you get better at it and then it gets easier and then you have a dialogue you never had before. Exactly. And there are, I mean, there are plenty of resources out there on having tough conversations. Mm -hmm. I heard a speaker at one of our conferences earlier this year and actually at another conference as well. Uh, she wrote the book, How to Say Anything to Anyone, and her name is Shari Harley. And it's such a great, it's such a great read. It's an easy read. But what it does is it then lays out a process as to how to have a difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. And it makes it so simple. You know, the, any, any conversation can be had in two to three minutes, even the hard ones, because it's simple. It's, it's not about emotion. It's not about personal. It's okay. In a business standpoint, here's what you did. It didn't work. Fix it. Here's how to fix it. Let's agree and move forward. And I've way oversimplified and probably butchered her process some, but that's all that it needs to be. So the book is only one page. The book, yeah. <laughs> but it's a great resource because it does just lay it out. It makes it really simple. Yeah. And to me, that's all that feedback needs to be. It doesn't have to be some convoluted half yeah. a day therapy session. Yeah. Right? Just yeah. Yeah. talk here's to people. What it is. So number three, loyalty. And this is actually very interesting because I see this come up a lot. You know, you said loyalty does not mean decades of tenure. We have to have a different measure of loyalty. So tell me what you mean by 
the definition of loyalty. So when it comes to loyalty, to me, loyalty is is it's really about being passionate about the organization that you work for. You're engaged and you are willing to work hard for them. How long you've been there is how long you've been there. It's tenure. That's not loyalty. Mm-hmm. We could all probably think about someone. If you think about a company that you work in or a company you've, company you've worked in previously, you can probably find someone that's been there quite a long time, that's a low performer, doesn't really do anything, and causes more problems than anything, but they're still there. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would argue that that person is loyal as much as they are safe, mm-hmm. right? They're comfortable. Mm-hmm. L- loyalty to me is you really got to be passionate about what you do and you are looking to improve the company that you work for and you're putting your best effort forward. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of misperception on loyalty and we think that age mm-hmm. drives loyalty when in all actuality, those of us that, and the individuals, I don't know the best way to say it, but the longer you've been with a company, the harder it is to remember the other companies you were with earlier mm-hmm. in your career. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the boomers, you know, the, yeah. the hallmark for loyalty, right? They are the benchmark for the most loyal generation. They even have, there was a study uh, by the Census Bureau and, you know, between their ages of 18 and 50, I think the number was somewhere around like 11.8 or 11.9 jobs yeah. during those years. And most of them were between the ages of 18 and 24, 26 years old. Mm-hmm. Well, that's also the age that our youngest generations are right now. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to remember when you're in your 20th year with a company what it was like in your you know first six months when you yeah. were trying to find the right fit. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. I was teaching a seminar about a year and a half ago and I had a lady in the seminar and she said, I, I just don't have loyalty uh, among my team. Uh, you know, the, these kids graduate and then they're there for like a year and a half and then they leave. They just aren't loyal. I said, well, do they work hard while she's there? She goes, they do, but they see this as a stepping stone to something else. And what was interesting is I said, well, for, my, for, for context, how long have you been with the company? She goes, I've been here for eight months. I said, so you're telling me that loyalty is defined by having been there for a long time, but you yourself have not been there that long. She goes, oh. I guess that doesn't necessarily mean loyalty because I am loyal because I work hard for my company. I said, and that's exactly the thing that we have to keep in mind. Employees want to be loyal to us, but it also has to be reciprocal, right? I'm going to work hard for the company as long as the company is willing to work hard for me. Mm -hmm. What we see in a lot of companies that struggle with this and they have high turnover in the younger ages is they are not loyal to them. They're not willing to invest anything to help them grow. They're not willing to help them become better. And then they leave and they say, well, you're not loyal. That's why we wouldn't invest in you. And it's it's such a catch-22 because I, I'm going to butcher the quote probably, but it's something along the lines of, you know, people ask, well, what if we train them and they leave? Oh, well, yeah. what if you don't train them and they stay? Yeah, yeah. Right? And I can't remember who that quote came from, but that's a, I mean, LinkedIn, that's a LinkedIn favorite. A LinkedIn, yeah. It's, it's a LinkedIn <laughs> quote at this point, right? Uh, but I mean, that's such a, it's so true. It right? is, yeah. It's to the point of cliche at this point. But it is, it's very true. If we aren't willing to show loyalty to our employees, mm-hmm. I don't know that we're, I would expect loyalty in return. It's like we're asking them, you've got to stay here and do everything for us, but we're not going to do a thing for you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, loyalty, to me, it, you can be loyalty 
you can be loyal your first week on the job. You can be passionate, hardworking, and dedicated to helping that company succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't determine that that's not the right career for you. Yeah. I, I would argue that if you stay with a company, uh, you know, five, ten years after you realize that that is even the right career field for you and you're not you're not committed, you're not engaged, you're not passionate, you're not really being loyal to that company yeah. as much as you are just staying in a comfort zone and not willing to, to better yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, sidetrack, what was your first job ever? My first job ever. I believe it was in a call center for Bass Pro's catalog sales because <laughs> I am from Springfield, Missouri, and we had we're the home of Bass Pro Shops. So, oh really? I worked in the uh, the catalog uh, sales, taking inbound sales calls. Oh, yeah, it was fun. I like to talk to people, so yeah, yeah. It, it actually became uh, quite enjoyable. Um, yeah, I probably I forget how long I, I was probably there for. Were you loyal? How long did you stay there? I would say that I was, pro- I'm trying to think, I was probably there about a year and a half. Okay. It was my first job and I had that through the end of high school uh, and then started with a local uh, lumber company in the accounting department to get some accounting yeah. experience through college. So yeah, I was there a while and it was it was fun that, you know, they made it competitive. Oh and yeah. And I, yeah. I like a good competition. <laughs> so I, when you like to talk to people and you like competition, that was inbound sales works job. pretty well. <laughs> Okay, so number four, yep. work ethic. So work ethic looks different today, obviously, than it did 20 years ago because yep. of technology, um, because of a lot of things that have changed. So you said, hours work does not equal productivity, especially when we are leveraging technology. Please forget about when you were my age or how we have always done it. That is an inhibitor to creativity and innovation. Yeah, so that's probably a couple things uh, to unpack there. Uh, when it comes to work ethic, I think, and this could be you know my bias coming up uh, through public accounting and still working with a lot of accounting firms. Uh, you know, our our measure is hours, mm-hmm. right? How many how many hours did you work? How many what's your charge hours? Different things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, I don't think all I don't think a lot of companies are that far different from that. They may track it the exact same way, but are you there when the boss gets there and are you there when the boss leaves? Yeah. Right. That's the traditional work ethic. Uh, measure. Um, and I always share, I had, a, I had a colleague that worked probably 3,000 hours uh, a year, his first few years in public accounting, and uh, he wasn't productive. I mean, he was there a lot, but mm-hmm. I don't know that he got a lot done. Um, he didn't last very long in public accounting, and determined that wasn't for him after a few months, uh, or after um, a few years, I mean, and I think it was his second year um, of having 3,000 in a row. He was like, I'm this isn't for me. And I'm like, well, sounds accurate. Um, but it was one where people looked at it and they're like, oh, he's, you know, he, but he's such a hard worker. I'm like, I don't, I don't know that he is yeah. right. Because yeah, he's there. Yeah. He's there to be seen, but is he, is, is he, he there to actually worker? get anything yeah. done? And I think we oftentimes confuse productivity with work ethic and um, or productivity with hours worked. Mm-hmm. And to me, work ethic is more about productivity than it is hours worked. Uh, I would much rather someone, you know, get their work done in 40 hours a week and do it really well and really efficiently uh, than sit there for 60 hours a week and, you know, still not even get it done fully or get it done very well. But I think that it's been so long ingrained in just the culture of business. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a generational thing. It's that it's just been around for so long that we tend to confuse 
hours with production and hours with work ethic. And if you're in the office, you're being productive. But if you're not in the office, you can't be working. And that's such a uh, such a confusing thing to me because in a lot of situations, uh, especially you know, unless you're you know, unless you're you know on a production floor, right, where you have to be there, or maybe healthcare, right, where mm-hmm. you have to be there. There are so many jobs now where if you're doing it from an office, you could probably do that same amount of work from anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And we just we tend to confuse. Yeah. Uh, what is that? And you know the the way that we've always done it, and that being an an inhibitor to creativity mm-hmm. and innovation. I mean, it's so true. I, I see it in a lot of organizations where somebody will throw out an idea and they're like, well, we tried that 30 years ago. It's not going to work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, technology 30 years Nothing ago is, is not even. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So we've got to stop thinking about this whole, uh, well, when I was your age or well, that, we've done it because that's the way that we've always done it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I liken it to, you know, when my kids ask me something and I have to resort to the, well, because I'm dad yeah. and, and that's the reason don't get me wrong. I still do it on yeah, occasion. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's not the right answer. Yeah. Right? There, there's, it's not a good enough there's, answer. There's a better anymore. answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, when I work with accounting firms, I actually had a group last week that I was talking with and I challenged them. I said, the next time that somebody asks you why you do something, you should outlaw from your vocabulary because that's the way we've always done it. Because if that's the way you've always done it is your answer, it's probably the worst answer that you could possibly give. There's got to be a better why. Mm-hmm. There's always got to be a better why. And when we rely on well, that's the way we've always done it, we don't try new things. Mm-hmm. We we don't look for better ways mm-hmm. to do it. And I think when it comes to that creativity and innovation, you know, one of the things that I hear people say is, well, how do we improve this? And I much rather hear people ask, what's the best way to do this? Mm-hmm. Right? That's how you get to innovation. Yeah. Rather than trying to change what you've been always been doing because that's the way you've always been doing it, stop looking at it that way and just say, well, if we were going to design this the best way possible, what would we do? Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to do that are some of your youngest, newest employees because they don't know the way you've always done it. But that causes another point of conflict yeah. because they don't know the way that we've always done it. So when they pitch an idea, it isn't through the lens of what we tried 30 years ago. And depending on how much communication training they've had and how tactful they yeah. approach that, it comes across as, as, you know, well, I'm new and I know more than you Wait, do. Yeah. When in all actuality, for many of those instances, it's how can I make this better? Not I want to prove to you how smart I am. It, it comes with a genuine intent, uh, though sometimes the tactfulness is missing. Yeah. But that's any new employee in a workforce, right? We all struggled with that when we were yeah. new and, and you know in in a professional organization, and we've got to teach that. And the soft skills tend to be taught later rather than earlier. And it's those soft skills that actually I think would help overcome a lot of the communication barriers. Well, and that brings us to the fifth conflict that you mentioned, knowledge transfer, and how those soft skills and those two generations working together is going to be so important. And that's where you do see the conflict arise, but is necessary for moving forward. Um, So... And you just pointed it out, newly hired employees now have institutional knowledge when they arrive on their first day. Um, But they're up against people who have experiential knowledge, maybe, um, that they've had for 20, 30 years. Where do you see this as, I guess, where do you see the conflict? And then where do you see it as, where do you see the potential? 
I think the conflict comes in because for those that are experienced uh, and have been with the company a while, it it comes across as, well, these young kids think that they know how to run the company and they just started. Mm -hmm. And if they knew how to run the company, they'd already be running the company and blah, blah, blah. Um, You know, that... That's the conflict. I think the potential is, and it goes back to one of the things that we talked about right out of the gate. If somebody comes to our company, say I just hired somebody and they're fresh out of school and they come in and they've done all this research about the organization and the industry and ways to be successful and new innovative applications of technology and ways to solve problems. And they come in and they start offering those to me. I have two options, right? I can look at that and say, who do you think you are? You just graduated. I've been here longer. I'm smarter. You know, go work somewhere else or Mm -hmm. just go do the task list that I'm going to give you. Or I can look at that and say, you actually had the ambition to go research our company, our industry, and the future and how things might change going forward. Let's talk about this from a business standpoint. Let's, Let's evaluate how this might be able to make our company better for the future and let's build on that ambition rather than stifling it it's all from a leader's standpoint it's all about how you react to it yeah you've got that you've got that choice and how you choose to react is is a lot about whether or not it's a conflict or an opportunity because if you want to learn how to run the best business in any industry, right? You can go to LinkedIn and connect with the leader of the best co- of the company in that industry. You can listen to their podcast. You can interact with them on Twitter. You can probably read the book that they wrote. Uh, you can go listen to them on 15 other podcasts. There is so much knowledge from great leaders mm-hmm. out there and available to tomorrow's leaders. They don't have to observe for 30 years to figure out how to be a good leader. They can go find that out. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been talking with a lot of organizations about in the last probably 18 months, but a lot over the last year is this concept of rapid skill development. And it's turning knowledge transfer on its head. And it's the fact that so often we think, oh, well, in 10 to 12 years, you hit this level, five to seven is this, three to five is this, right? You have all these benchmarks along the way. And one of the things that I we've been been challenging accounting firms with is, can you take someone with three years of experience and turn them into a professional with seven years of experience before within a year? All right. So essentially, the question is, can you get someone seven years worth of experience in four years? And for the math people out there, you know, my the initial reaction was, well, no, four doesn't equal seven, right? Mm-hmm, Obviously, mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a focus on tenure. That's all that that is. Mm-hmm. And we have the opportunity now to leverage technology and all of the possible knowledge that's out there and say, what are the experiences that someone with seven years should have? Mm. And if we're intentional about that, give shadowing opportunities, you know, give them um, projects that are at a higher level than we would expect for someone at that level in our companies, you could feasibly get someone four years of experience and two or seven years of experience and four, however intentional you want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to someone two weeks ago uh, at a conference. He became a, a partner in an accounting firm at 25 because they were very intentional with how they yeah. developed him into a leader to get them the experiences he needed, the knowledge and the skills that he needed to get to that level a few years into his career. That takes intentional knowledge transfer. That's when it's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But when we have someone comes in with that type of ambition and we're like, look, I've been doing this longer than you've been alive. 
Yeah, step you know, back. Yeah, yeah, you just bide your time, and in 25 years you can do this. That's when knowledge transfer becomes a conflict, and yeah. a lot of it is how we react. And that is not reserved for a cross-generational issue. Uh, I have seen plenty of people in the millennial generation, in our generation, that have said, I don't understand how to deal with millennials. Yeah. Which is kind of a weird question to say, well, I don't understand how to deal with people like me. Yeah. So you don't know how to deal with yourself, right? So if yeah. we really want to get meta here, <laughs> that's right? A it's whole like other... that's a whole other podcast. But, <laughs> but it's one of those where it it is all about a leader's willingness to recognize and harness ambition and take that for the better of their organization, rather than trying to step back and say, "Well, you didn't do it the way that I did it, so therefore it's not going to work." Yeah, which is something you see everywhere yes across all generations yeah. yeah and it goes up and down the generations yeah. well they've been doing this 30 years no wonder they can't figure out anything yeah. right oh well they've been doing this three days no wonder they can't figure out it. yeah. it's the exact same conversation just a different lens yeah so let's talk about the future and what you see coming up for the workforce for when we see boomers fully retired um and you know gen y gen z moving up into director c-suite or already there i mean like you said 25 year old partner what 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 do you think the future holds and what do we anti-fraud professionals you know accountants auditors investigators government Mm -hmm. you're going to see a lot of um older government retire as well what do we need to know? Yeah, I think for starters, as we think about you know Gen Y and Gen Z moving into leadership roles, the future is here. Gen Y, the oldest uh, millennials are just about forty at this point, right? The oldest we are of the not millennials. 40, we aren't that Jeremy. of the older millennials, but the oldest of the millennials are uh, nearing forty years of age. So. In a lot of organizations, they are the C-suite. They yeah. are in that leadership role. Uh, if you look at a lot of you know younger companies, they are they they've started the companies. They're leading the companies, mm-hmm. which is a myth to point out that people assume millennials are young twenty-year-olds, which is just, which is not millennial. That's Gen that is, Z at yeah, this point. Yeah, right? exactly. So and, we've actually moved into a whole other generation as the youngest generation. We have, we have. And I, I, you know, that's actually a really good, uh, something really important, I think, to point out that so often when I hear people use the phrase millennials, they do mean somebody that's in their 20s, Mm -hmm. in their young 20s. I hear millennials ask about millennials and what they're asking about is, well, how do I deal with the Mm 23-year-old? Because I'm now almost 40 and Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it was like to be 23. That goes back to one of the big dangers, right, of, of talking about stereotypes yeah. and the generation. There's just no point in it, frankly. Uh, the question is, well, I don't understand. I don't remember what it was like to be 23 and have these tough decisions that yeah. I was going through in my life at that point and everything changing, going from college to the working world, maybe mm-hmm. starting a family and this and that and the other. Right. That's the real question. Uh, as far as the future goes, the future, I mean, it is here from what a, the way people a lot of people talk about the future. It's what... It's what's happening now, but we've got to be willing to step back and open our eyes and realize, oh, yeah, that's already happening. We already have young people leading our organizations. Uh, We already have the next generation doing that transition. I think one of the things that we have to be really intentional about is knowledge transfer. How do we get that institutional knowledge, that experiential knowledge, 
the way that we've always done things and the why behind that other than because it's what we've always done, the context. Mm-hmm. How do we transition that down to the youngest generation, to the next generation? Uh, I, succession planning, you know, I, I talk about it a lot of the times through the lens of an accounting firm, but it's no different in government or internal audit or in, investigator. At some point, the current leadership team is going to have to retire. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of organizations, that's uh, an event, not a process. And I think that as we look to the future of our organizations, it's important that we recognize that transition is a process, mm-hmm. that it needs to start you know, a full decade before it happens and thinking about who are the next leaders? What are the key things they need to know? What are the experiences they need to have so that at some point we're like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm out, I'm going to retire, by the way, now you're leading this. And they're thinking, well, I don't even know what what that means. What do you mean I'm leading this? I don't know how to lead. I've never done this. I think it's very intentional uh, Mm -hmm. about that knowledge transfer, about that succession planning. Uh, you know, for for an investigators, one of the things that I talk to people about a lot is, you know, get somebody who's young and tech savvy and pair them with an, if you got an investigator that's maybe a little bit more experienced and doesn't like tech, mm-hmm. you know, get them working together, get the tech savvy individual to get it to, to charts and graphs and run the analytics and use the data and then go to that individual that's maybe tech averse and say, look, I know you don't want to use the technology. Here's what I've got. And I know with your 40 years of experience, you can look at this and tell me what's happening. Help me understand your process for that. How do you do that? And get those cross-generational teams. And it's not so much worried about cross-generational, but it's it's cross-perspective. right? Because you probably have 30-year-olds that hate technology. And you probably have 6-year-olds that love technology. Uh, So it's figuring out how do you get everyone working together for the betterment and the future of the organization and being intentional about that, how do we how do we create those those working relationships, uh, and how do we focus on, you know, taking what's the the strengths of each of our employees, not the generations, mm-hmm. of each of your employees, and maximize those strengths and pair them, you know, in teams where they complement one one another, to ultimately make your organization the best that it can be. I think we're going to see things probably transition faster and faster as technology evolves. Well, and I really like what you just said because we constantly say that we have to cross-train, right? Um, We're doing more with less. We have to cross-train. But to get cross-perspectives is equally as important, I think. And that's – I think that's a good takeaway. You know, it's not just training someone how – step one through five, but training why do you do step one through five. Exactly. It's giving that context. And – that's going to become increasingly important. We didn't get a whole lot into technology you know, on this, but as technology evolves and a lot of the routine processes and tasks are automated through artificial intelligence, machine learning, analytics, robotics, all that, the context and the why and the how becomes so much more important. And as we move to the future for our organizations and for the industry of fraud investigations and fraud prevention, the machines are never going to do it all. I'm still convinced there's not going to be a find fraud button. There's going to be a button that helps us find what's most likely fraud. But at the end of the day, we've got to be the expert investigators that we were trained to be. That takes perspective, that takes context, that that takes the why and the how and how to put all of that together, and that takes people working together. And 
whether you've got 40 years of experience, four years of experience, or four days of experience, all perspectives are useful, and it's figuring out how do we how do we leverage all of those so that we can make our organization as effective as we could possibly be. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. All right. Thank you so much for coming in today in person. Uh, we're yeah. glad to have you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Mandy. All right. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Fraud Talk. This is Mandy Moody signing off, and we will see you next month.